This is Teaming with Ideas, the podcast that explores how people at work work together. I'm Carlos Valdez Depaney, your host, and I spent decades working with teams as well as researching, writing, and speaking about collaboration. Over the years, I've met some brilliant people, academics, business leaders, managers, consultants, who share my passion for collaboration. In Teaming with Ideas, I'll be speaking with these experts who will share their thoughts, experiences, theories, and practices so that you can put them to work to make your work life richer and more rewarding. Enjoy. Hello, brilliant listeners, and welcome back to Teaming with Ideas, the podcast about people at work working together. I am your host, Carlos Valdez de Pena. My guest on this episode is Vadula Bal. I met Vadula when she was leading management and leadership development at Mars. Vadula got her PhD at University of Texas, Austin. She has worked at the Center for Creative Leadership and, of course, at Mars. She also had a senior learning and development role at Target. She's currently working for Maersk, the global shipping and logistics company. Vadula is one of the clearest thinkers I've ever met on the subject of teams and collaboration. You'll hear that in this episode where she talks about team building that works, team building that doesn't, and why teams are the real unit of organizational change. And by the way, Vadula was instrumental in the development of the team effectiveness framework we created at Mars. That same framework has become the focus of my writing and speaking and consulting, so I owe Vadula a very special debt of gratitude. Now, let's listen to my conversation with Vadula Bal. First of all, Carlos, let me say thank you for that kind introduction. You sure do know how to make a girl feel welcome. So thank you for that. Uh, Really, it's touching to hear you say what you said. So thank you very much. The only other thing that I might share about myself, two things. The first is, you may know this, Carlos, but I'm a big fan of Peter Block's. I, I call him my intellectual boyfriend because I love his brain and the way that it works. One of the things that Peter Block believes, and really through reflection and thinking about Peter's work, I've come to believe as well, is that the small group or the team is always the unit of transformation. So if we think about transformations in companies or in societies or NGOs, wherever, it's always a group of people that get together and make magic to change what exists today. That's a fundamental belief that I hold. The second belief that I hold, and maybe this fits into the contrarian point of view, is that today I think we in companies are wasting a lot of money when we try to support and generate team effectiveness. That's something that I can't wait to talk to you about. I'll share other things about myself as we get into the conversation, but those are probably the two most important things to know. I love it. It's a great way to frame the conversation that's coming. Peter Block has come up in these conversations already at least once. His books still take up a a prominent place on my shelf. So welcome into the conversation again, Peter Block. Now, just quickly, let folks know where are you working today and what's your work set up like? Here we are in September, last day of September 2020. COVID is still with us. What's your work life like? I am the Vice President of Talent and Development for AP Mollermarsk. We are a global integrator of container logistics. And that's a lot of words to describe the fact that our vision as a company is to become the FedEx of moving containers around the world. And my role in the company is that I have a number of HR centers of expertise that report to me. So leadership development, functional development, talent management, diversity and inclusion, a whole bunch of them. 
And I have to say that the company has been super supportive of me because it's a company, if you guys don't know, that's based in Copenhagen, Denmark, where I lived for a year. And then I missed my home here in the US. And so they've been kind enough to let me live in the US for the past it's been almost two years now that I've been in the US. Wow. And so the way that I'm working and the way that my team are working is that we're all pretty well globally dispersed and we team virtually. It was a challenge and also an idea that was challenged when we first brought it up about my moving back to the US. And I had some team members that were quite concerned by that. But I actually think we've been able to be pretty effective in spite of the distance and in spite of the challenges that COVID's brought about. So two years, and, and how many folks are sitting in an office in Copenhagen, and how many are spread out in other places? It depends. I'm not trying to be difficult. And I say that because I really think COVID has been a bit of a dance in different parts of the world. So there have been moments where people are in the office. And when people are in the office, I have four direct reports that sit in Copenhagen. I have two that sit elsewhere. So one in Spain, one in the UK. But what's happened recently with an increase of cases in Denmark is that our office has shifted to be there only if you need to. And so a lot of people are working from home right now. What that means for us is we're all working from home. In that two years, you convinced some folks at AP Merle Maersk to go down this path of distributed teams, remote teams, before it was necessary. What were some of the things you agreed to do or ways you agreed to work that got folks comfortable with this team working in this way? Oh, I think it's a great question. I sit in Colorado, so we're eight hours behind Central European time zone. So one of the very first things I committed to is that I would be present and online. And maybe it's worth saying something about Denmark and about Maersk and our culture as well, is that as you may or may not know, Denmark office culture is very focused. So people are generally in the office from nine until let's say 4.30. And the culture in Denmark is such that there's an importance put on being with your family. And so people think nothing of it on a regular day. If somebody leaves the office at 4.30, whether that person be a man or a woman to go pick up the kids from school, make dinner for them, and then maybe people get back online. But the office hours are quite limited compared to other companies that I've worked for, say, for example, Mars. The way you put that's interesting. The office hours are limited. You didn't say the working hours. Yeah. Because the office hours are fairly well defined, then my commitment was that I would be online and available and having meetings beginning just after the lunch hour. My earliest commitment was that I would start my day with calls and stuff at 5 a.m. That's one of the commitments that I've made and stuck to for this entire two years. The other commitment that I made, I'm not sure that I made it explicitly, but I've demonstrated it on a number of occasions, is that when there are important calls, let's say with our CEO or somebody of his stature, then I'll be available for a call at any time. I don't do that every week or it's not even every few weeks, but there are exceptions where I feel like it's my responsibility to shift a bit. 
my working hours because they're being permissive with me or they were prior to COVID. It felt like. Right. Yeah. Well, it was a trade-off, right? They're getting something and you're getting something. Yeah. They're getting yeah. you at a reasonable hour of the day and you're saying, great to do that. I'll play with the, the way I time my life out on a yeah. daily basis. I'm curious to know, Vadula, when you first started this journey, granted things have changed since COVID, but when you began working remotely like this, what was your commitment to how often you would see your team face to face? Prior to COVID, I was traveling to Copenhagen one week a month and there for the whole week. So Monday okay. through Friday. I think in the beginning it was necessary, right? Because the team had been used to having, like not all of them, obviously, but the ones that are based in Copenhagen, for the most part, they were used to having their bosses on site. So I think it was helpful that I was there frequently. Yeah, I would yeah. imagine. So even what they're used to, sure. And that continued up until roughly March of this year, I would guess then, huh? Yeah, that was my, the last time I was on a plane was in March. Yeah. Isn't that weird? I was used to being on planes two, three times a month and it's like I nothing. I know. Like I haven't had my feet on the ground for this long in ages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not a bad thing. Uh, a no, bad thing. no, I'm not complaining. I have a lot of miles I need to use up though. And I can't <laughs> use them. Before we talk about the things that are pet peeves for both of us about what doesn't work. What are you finding helpful in this period of enforced separation? Because this is different from just working remotely as you were doing prior to March, right? What are you doing to try to maintain that sense of cohesiveness among team members? I think one of the things that I'm doing is finding meaningful opportunities for collaboration that I may have overlooked or assumed would happen in some other way before. And I'll give you an example. I'm a part of the HR leadership team of our company. And one of the pieces of work that we're doing right now is trying to identify what our HR priorities are going to be for the next three years, let's say, and what's the roadmap to get there. So what will we do when, how's it going to serve the strategy and the business? And one of the things that I ended up doing with my team in a virtual offsite last week was using them together to get input on some proposed initiatives that had come from other sources. They thought that it was meaningful work. Somebody said at the end of our meeting how much they appreciated being asked about this future-focused task and knowing that not everything they propose is going to be accepted or show up in the final version of the strategy, but they valued the opportunity to input and influence. I think it, it was meaningful for them. And so I don't know that leaders default when you're forced to be virtual to try to do meaningful work like that together. I'm smiling because it warms the cockles of my heart. I'm not sure what a heart cockle looks like, but <laughs> mine are definitely warmer than they were. That idea of meaningful work is yeah. to me so important in what makes great teams and collaboration. It's what in the book I cranked out earlier this year was really about saying, make the meaningful work the core of what you do, and that's going to be what keeps you together. That was my yeah. argument. Yeah. So that brings us to another subject. The doula. Yeah. <laughs> there are lots of things people are trying, doing, experimenting with to create using team spirit or yeah. team togetherness, team building activities they're engaging in to try to strengthen their teams. So use all of those terms advisedly. Let's talk about where people might be wasting their time and money. I'm particularly interested in some of your favorite pet peeves. And by the way, some of this will be 
lockdown COVID specific and some of it can be when we were and will be face to face. So my first one, and it's a little bit a sign of my own sort of intellectual maturing that I talk about this, because this is something that I did and in various roles that I had and that I didn't sold for a long time. Group debriefs of assessments, right? So everybody takes the Myers-Briggs type indicator, everybody takes the FIRO-B, and we debrief the assessment as a team. Now, I am not saying that there is no value to that kind of exercise because I do think revealing information about ourselves and about each other can serve us. But I think we often equate that kind of fun conversation with meaningful development as a team. And I don't think the two are the same. Okay. Let's pause on this one for a second. I know there's more, but I want to just check one thing. Yeah. When I learn that you're an introvert and I'm an extrovert, or I learn that you're more of a sensing type and my preferences are more intuitive, certainly I can use that to work with you, right? Because you have certain preferences, maybe when we work together, you're going to be better at some stuff. That's valid, right? It is. And again, I'm not saying there's no place for it, but I find that that becomes the default intervention and it makes an assumption that it's interpersonal conflict or personality conflict that's at the core of any issues that a team might have. Oh, that's interesting. So now the conflict word comes up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. When in fact, I think there are often other more structural causes of conflict. Yeah. There are task-related kinds of conflicts. Role conflicts. Like, I thought that was my job. No, I thought it was mine. I think having fun together is great. Yes. I do. I'm a big fan of letting off steam in the company of people I I work with. I think it's just healthy and we can laugh together and maybe get over some stuff that way. But to your point, and I just got a study from someone I know at Montclair State University, 2018, Eduardo Salas, you know, Eduardo Salas' work, right? Yeah, yeah. It makes it pretty clear that that's not the kind of team building that changes any kind of collaborative outcomes. Yes. So there we have the personality play, which is really popular. I agree. And I have to admit, I have indulged myself in (laughs) in, in that practice. If I know you're an extrovert and I'm an introvert, we can probably make some use of that information and how we work together. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to stay out of conflict any more than we might otherwise or or necessarily get a better outcome. What's next on your list? So this I've seen more times than I can think of. And I think it's a bit of a variation on the theme that we just discussed. But have you ever had to, when you're in a new team, do a life timeline of your own life and share it with people? Yes, <laughs> I have. <laughs> and- I think the thing that bothers me about that is that it becomes a bit of a forced disclosure. And again, you know that I'm a fan of, is it Wilfred Beyond? Wilfred, Wil- Wilfred, Wilfred Beyond. Yes. Wilfred Beyond, right? Mm-hmm. I do think teams cycle through phases, mm-hmm. but I think that kind of attempt at forcing closeness with people is just 
misplaced and it makes people feel good for the moment, but it's not a lasting closeness. I have to tell you this story. It's, it's so unrelated. Good. So my best friend in college was a big dater. She dated so many people. She would come home from each of her first dates and our conversation at the end of her dates would be that she'd start off saying, oh my gosh, I went on a date with person X and we had an awesome talk. Awesome talk. And that meant that she was a good enough listener and encourager of men that they would divulge their deepest, darkest secrets to her on the first night that they were on a date. Those relationships rarely survived because people disclosed too early. <laughs> the next day they're like, oh my gosh, I'm super embarrassed. Here is my analogy. I think that kind of lifeline exercise is the equivalent of the awesome talk in my best friend's dating career. Okay. That works for me. This may be related. This may actually go back to the Myers-Briggs slash Fyro B thing. What about the escape room? Really popular now as a team building event. So let me take the side of the team leader saying, oh, we're going to do this awesome night at an escape room. It's going to really teach us how to do teamwork together, solving a problem. And therefore, the assumption is we will be a better team. What do you think? No. No. <laughs> Look, don't get all intellectual on me now. I know people are going to think I'm like the most boring and dry person on the planet. Number one, you assume that the tasks in an escape room are team tasks versus a person knows how to solve clue X. I don't know. One, I've never been to one, but they solve part of it. And then like the team gets out of the room or whatever. By and large, I would argue that they don't necessarily build a more effective team unless the team actually sits down and has a meaningful debrief about that experience. I'm not sure how many teams actually do that. How did we solve the first problem that we encountered what did we do that we'd want to continue to do the next time we have a challenge in front of us? What would we do differently? That to me is the meaningful way to get value out of an escape room. I think most of our brilliant listeners would agree that after the escape room, the thing you do is drink beer. <laughs> but unless there is some kind of debrief, right? And there's an old rule that says for any activity that you do as a team, you should be spending 2x the amount of time debriefing as you spent doing it. Really? I had yeah. not heard that. I'm a big believer in the debrief, but that's news to me. That's interesting. In theory, if you've got a team that's working on some kind of challenge, whether it's fun or a real one, there's so much going on that frankly, to do a thorough enough job of what's just been executed and done together should take a while. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I've been a part of some of these. When you have a strong consultant slash facilitator feeding back observations about what they noticed, asking questions based on the behaviors they saw, getting people to reflect deeply about how they responded to the situation and think about the effect that had on their colleagues who were working this challenge together, it could be very powerful. I like the rule. That's great. That's the kind of thing I like to share with the listeners. It's a very practical piece of advice they can take away. I found it to come really handy in designing team interventions. Right. And at first, people roll their eyes like, geez, really, we did that for 90 minutes and you want to talk about it for 180? <laughs> it's not all just sitting in a circle and, and chatting. So Yes, it's not just navel gazing, as we used Correct. to say, right? My belief is that the only sustainable form of team spirit is learning together. It's yeah. when we learn together around meaningful stuff yeah. that we get stronger as a team. Any other pet peeves of yours? I'm just dying to know. 
If, <laughs> if any others pop into my head, I will raise them. But I think those are probably the key ones too. So then if my Myers-Briggs workshop and my <laughs> escape room are not going to make my team awesome, what is going to make my team awesome? Over the course of my learning about teams and working with teams, I've become quite a structuralist about them. And I use that term loosely, like I don't mean it from a philosophical perspective. That I think the org design and the way you put together your team has mm. more to do with its effectiveness necessarily than the personalities in it. And that if something's wrong or missing in the structure or support to the team, you can do all the MBTI debriefs on the planet and it's not going to work. Land that for me a little bit. Maybe in terms of a team you're running now or a team you led in the past, what did that structural approach look like? Let me give you an example. This is a team that I worked with a while ago and it was an executive team for one of the businesses that was a part of the company that I was working for. And this team had a really ambitious business transformation to deliver they never quite got together as a team. They needed to be collaborative to deliver the output that the business expected them to see. And they never really pulled it off. Part of the reason was a structural reason because there was one person on the team that had an overabundance of responsibility for the key area that they were trying to transform. And the rest of them were just sort of players around the edge. The guy that owned the 80% had no need to talk to the other people or, you know what I mean? And so we could have done all the debriefs and we didn't, right? But we could have done all the debriefs that we wanted to do around MBTI or Firo B and why this guy was taking all the control. But it wasn't an interpersonal issue. It was the fact that the work wasn't spread equally, if you will. There wasn't a need. There was somebody that owned most of the responsibility, if you will. It links back to the comment you made much earlier in our conversation about involving your team in meaningful work, mm. that it's the way you think about and structure the work that is what leads to better team work or collaboration. I think that's exactly right. And if I'm not mistaken, and to give you credit for what I think is a really amazing idea is that team leaders don't often enough spend time thinking about what is that meaningful collaborative work? They're not explicit enough. Am I not correct in assuming that that's what Professor Hackman was really impressed with? Let's face it. I mean, he was an inspiration to me. Yeah. And so I just shot my inspiration right back at its source when I met him. But I think that's a really enlightened idea. As leaders, we sometimes just make the assumption that people will sort it out and figure out where and when right. to collaborate on what. But there's something around leaders being explicit about collaboration. I think at most we say, I expect you to collaborate. But that doesn't go far enough. How do you make collaboration an accountable expectation? Yeah. Right. You, you can only do that by saying this is the work that requires it. By the way, it's one of the things I admire about you. You've been an academic. You've been an external consultant. You've spent years as an internal consultant. You've, you've done it all in this space. You've come at it from so many angles. I think it gives it a richness and a depth and a credibility to what you have to say. But what do we do? There are thousands of organizations out there, for-profits, not-for-profits, hospitals, schools, spending money on conventional team building that's not yielding the kinds of results they really want. Mm. Is there a message we can be sharing with people that will be palatable, that will say, hey, think about this and think about a different 
way to go forward? I have to say, people like their fun. I know. And to be honest, there's a part of me that says that whether it's in a COVID moment or not, that work is generally hard, right? And collaboration is exhausting, as we all know. Mm -hmm. And so if people want to have fun, that's great. I think our responsibility as coaches and consultants is to tell people what they're getting. I think it's to tell them what they're getting for their investment. And so you're going to invest, let's say $10,000 in bringing Carlos Valdez de Pena to your organization to run an MBTI session for two hours. Here's what you're going to get. You're going to get an opportunity to know each other better. You're going to get an opportunity to understand why people act the way they do. But what you're not going to get necessarily is sustained improvement because we're dealing at an interpersonal level. To be honest, it's a battle, especially if you're internal, in my experience, it's a battle that you fight forever because they want a little levity. And, and yeah. if we can do it in the guise of being a more effective team, then you know what? Okay, but let's be honest about what they're getting. I've got a lot of colleagues in this business who are making their living selling the sorts of stuff you and I have been is, is criticizing the right word? Oh, um, probably. Right. And I, I have to get them on board with this notion. I'll see what I can do. Yeah, right. <laughs> Send all your mail to Carlos. Yeah, really. <laughs> Vadula, I just want to say thank you. We've come to the end of our time speaking. This has been the most fun I've had in a long time. Your candor and, and your good sense of humor about it. Oh, Carlos, this was super fun. And thank you for inviting me. And it makes me miss working together with you. Yeah. Well, maybe there'll be a time in the future, right? Yeah. So everybody, for listening, thank you. This has been Vadula Ball. And oh, by the way, if you haven't read Peter Block's work, go buy some of those books. And I will look forward to seeing you all on the next episode of Teaming with Ideas. Take care. Hi, I'm Janet Aldrich, producer and director of Teaming with Ideas. Thanks for listening. And thank you for the music, John Wallerick and Brent Peterson. If you found this podcast useful, please subscribe, review, and share. Want more? Visit Carlos's blog, Teeming with Ideas, at carlosvdapena.com. Questions? Click on the Contact Carlos button, and we'll answer promptly. To be interviewed on the Teeming with Ideas podcast, visit carlosvdapena.com forward slash podcast dash contact and complete the questionnaire. Thanks again for listening. And keep on teeming with ideas.